So imagine that this cultural inheritance, this language that you use, is a bit like a big bag of Scrabble letters. So imagine that basically your parents of the world around you gives you like a big bag of Scrabble letters and says, here you go, you can now make your own script or your own way of seeing things and you can use all these ideas and all this language we've given you, but you can use it with a sense of freedom. But what you don't know is that there are some letters that are present in other people's bags that are missing from your bag. So without knowing it, there are just certain things you can't really say and think because they're just not part of the, the language that you're given to make sense of things. They're just not present in your world. This is Three People in Your Head, a podcast about getting the best out of yourself and others. Co-hosted by Matt Taylor and myself, John Fleming. Sponsored by the International Transactional Analysis Association and the European Association for Transactional Analysis. Our guest for this episode is James Sedgwick, psychotherapist, university lecturer, and author of the book, Contextual Transactional Analysis, The Inseparability of Self and World. We explore the central concepts and themes of contextual TA and discuss the significant influence that context has on our understanding of ourselves, others, and the world around us after a brief discussion about psychotherapy training in the UK. We hope you enjoy. So, James, you're very welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, you're very welcome. James, you might start off with giving an intro. Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you come from, what you do. Sure. So uh, my name is James Sedgwick, and my current role is I am the program lead for a UKCP registered psychotherapy training uh, in the city of Birmingham, which for those of you who are not based in the UK is the second largest city based smack in the middle, which has a sort of an industrial heritage. And I've lived here for about 15 years. I qualified as a CTA, I think it's about seven years ago now, maybe eight. And prior to that, I was already qualified as a practitioner. I was already qualified in, in counseling with a sort of psychodynamic interest. And I I was working after that for the National Health Service in the UK as a therapist, where they insisted on training me in CBT. Uh, so I'm, all, I'm also trained in that. So I have quite a lot of different professional strings to my bow. Mm. And until about two, maybe three years ago, I had worked continuously for the National Health Service in the UK, which was where most of my practice is done. And which is where I guess most of the client experience that I drew upon for writing the book came out of. One of the things that um, I say in the introduction to the book is, you know, I met a lot of smart people in my training. I read a lot of good books, and yet none of them were really written about these people. So in some ways, I had to go away and, and write my own. So mm. uh, that's, that's how I ended up here. Very good. Great. So what did take you into TA in the first place then, if you had already trained? What was the the attraction to TA? Uh, so that's a, that's a really good question. I think... Uh, when I first moved into mental health, which is about sort of 16, 17 years ago now, I was working as a support worker uh, for a, a hostel in Coventry. And, you know, I did not have a lot of money and I wanted to train to be a counselor or a therapist. And yet most of the trainings just were way out of my price bracket. I just, there was absolutely no way I could have done it. Mm. So at the time, it was relatively easy to go to what, what we would call a further education college, which again, for those of you who don't know, the UK is, is usually a community college that does vocational kind of post-school trainings. Mm. So you could train to be a counselor relatively cheaply at one of these colleges. So, I mean, I, I lived hand to mouth for three years and came out with 
what was a qualification to practice, but nonetheless, probably the, the lowest ranking one in the country. But it was good enough to get me into a job, but really as, as fair enough as the qualification was, I felt that I wanted a bit more. And so obviously I, I then had the job, which then asked that I trained in CBT because the, the National Health Service in the UK was putting a massive amount of money into the provision of CBT at the time. So I did that and I worked out quite quickly that um, I, I often, when I'm talking to my students about this, I often talk about relationships to models and I introduced my relationship to CBT as basically I married it for money, which is, <laughs> the uh, you know, I said, so I had to kind of learn to kind of live with something that I married for money and had to find some way to stay in the marriage. Cause obviously I was, I was sort of employed to do it, but it became, you know, obvious relatively quickly that it wasn't going to do everything for me that I needed. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I was looking around for something else to do. And when I was based in one of my jobs, I had a clinical supervisor uh, for my work who had done some training in transactional analysis and seemed, seemed to know a lot of what he was doing, really. He seemed to be one of those people who always had a sense of what was going on. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I had looked at some of the literature previously. I think I'd just scooted through it quite quickly in the early days of my counseling training. But I went and revisited it, particularly some of the slightly more in-depth material that he'd made me aware of. And I thought, okay, so I could put this, I could put this into my jigsaw and it wouldn't be completely contradictory with what I already know and do because you, mm. you do a bit of everything in TA, really. Mm. And obviously, I think the other thing about it is, you know, it's, it has a kind of a direct appeal because you can sort of look at these books and then you can look up from your book and think, okay, I can now see that in people around me. I think it has a direct yes. appeal that almost no other model therapy has because yeah. it's so observational, some aspects, but it's so observational in nature. So it kind of immediately grabs you really. So I made the very foolish decision to, um, to actually begin my TA training at the same time I was doing my CBT training, which I'd perhaps say I don't recommend, but I just about got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it was it was quite a frantic time, really, all in all. Yeah, yeah, a lot at once. I think you might be raising something that would be interesting for us to to just acknowledge as well. There, although it's not directly what what this podcast is about, but it's about access to training and about mm-hmm. the cost of of lots of psychotherapy trainings and, of course, TA training. It's very yeah. expensive, and that is a that's something that we should probably acknowledge because I think that there's a lot of people who would be wonderful therapists who are just not able to seek that profession because yes. of, of it not being accessible to them. What's your thoughts on that? Okay, so that's an interesting question because obviously I, I have two postgraduate trainings in therapy now, one in cognitive behavioral therapy and one in transactional analysis. And one of them was paid for. So, you know, my, my CBT training was funded by the UK government indirectly, the regional health authority which is why obviously a lot of people were pursuing these options because it was funded. So we do have certain forms of training and therapy, CBT training and also clinical psychology that are funded in this country. But that's because these are therapies that have a strong institutional presence. Yeah. Mm. Let's say they are, they are developed within and used within services that are government funded. Yeah. So they're very much inside of therapies. And I think transactional analysis is very much an outsider therapy, both in terms of its actual institutional status and also somewhat in terms of its character, mm. you know, because it was developed by people who were not necessarily psychiatrists and were not necessarily insiders. I mean, I know Ben was a psychiatrist, but obviously people like Jackie Schiff, you know, I think was a social worker. I think the, yeah. the Gordons also were not psychiatrists. So because you have to be a psychiatrist to be a, a psychoanalyst or a therapist in the States, you have this kind of outsider presence, you know, we'll have to go and do something outside the system. Mm. And it created this sort of dynamic that TA would be 
a slightly kind of countercultural set apart set of ideas. But of course, once you've done that, you then have to think about, well, how do you pay for it? Um, so, you know, if you're going to sit outside services or institutions where there, is, there are funding streams available for people to train, your only option is to charge people directly for what you do. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, you have to then make a living out of what you do. So I don't begrudge anybody within transactional analysis making a living out of the fact that they've invested a significant amount of time and money in acquiring these skills and experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the long and short of it is, yes, if you want to train according to specifications, it is expensive. But you know, the only the only two solutions to that are either to to work in concert with other other approaches to make funded training places more available. Mm. which would require a kind of dance with institutions, which some people are just not that willing to do uh, yeah. because, because it involves compromises. You know, there are now some kind of, there's an interface now between the, the UK Council for Psychotherapists in this country and the health service to try and get funded training places for psychotherapists, but they've had to make certain concessions to that because you do, because yes. they want something in return for you and they want you to work within their, their usual ways of doing things. So you don't have exactly the same freedom. And I think, you know, the, the overall character of therapy, you know, if you think about people going into therapy training courses, the things that I'm saying now won't necessarily chime with, with some people who are trained to be therapists because a lot of people are doing it as a second career. You know, a lot of people are coming into this a little bit later in life. They're, they're tired of office politics. They don't want to deal with systems and people. They want to have their own practice, set up their own space. And it creates a kind of character. Yeah. which settles over the whole profession where, where people are coming to this at a time where they just don't want to do the kind of things that would set up funding training places. Yeah. And right. once again, I, I'm not begrudging anybody their life choices or criticizing these things, but it, it does mean there are certain consequences, as you've indicated, John, for people who might want to enter the profession yeah. who would really benefit from having at least some funding for their training places. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess- love the idea of democratizing TA training. And I also see how that might not be compatible with us remaining kind of countercultural and having our very protected stance. I can see what you're talking about in terms of the compromises which might need to be made. Yeah, absolutely, because yeah. You know, there's now almost like a particular kind of cultural division between those kinds of therapists that sit within institutions because of the strong ev- you know, emphasis upon both short-term ways of working and evidence-based practice. And yeah. as we know, it's quite hard to research therapy in certain ways without you know, whilst replicating the kind of the real life circumstances under which good work is done. Yeah. So having, you know, having both worked privately and also within institutions, I understand some of those constraints are things that some people just won't want to live with it um, yeah. because it's hard to get good things done. I hear you saying that research is a, a part of this as well. And mm-hmm. I think you were mentioning in your form that TA historically hasn't done that much research in terms of its efficacy, but that's shifting slightly now. Again, that's a a barrier to us being involved as closely involved with institutes and the, the bodies that would award money. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, there are, there are people who know much more about research within TA than I do, but I know Mark Widdison, who knows a lot about it, will talk very much about kind of playing the game, really. Look, you know, we just sort of have to do this um, because he thinks that, that opportunities are just going to go to to services and to models that, that are willing to play the game in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And uh, to meet the criteria as they're set by the people who hold the purse strings. Yeah, there's a balance to be had to that as well, I suppose, isn't there? Because, you know, for the general public or for the institutions to want uh, a sense of validity about an approach is, for me is acceptable as well. Like if I was a, a client, I would want the institutions to be checking the validity of, of approaches. Yes. Um, 
how that is done and the deals that are struck on the back of that, however, isn't always clean. But that's a topic for, for another day, maybe. Yeah. James, I, I really wanted to ask you around contextual TA. If you yes. were to tell me what contextual TA is in a sentence, what would you say? I would say it can't be done in a sentence, John. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I, won't take, I won't take 45 minutes, but one sentence is, that's a bit of a tall order. Um, so contextual TA is an interlinked set of ideas which help people to understand a, a particular kind of psychosocial distress and, you know, at least give some pointers towards how this can be responded to. But alongside that, in order to put those ideas into play and to develop them, it's also a kind of a rereading of some of the, the main concepts of TA with a view to thinking about, you know, if we started looking at a person from a slightly different angle, mm. how all these concepts look somewhat different. So even though they're only slightly different, there's a kind of a sense of revising things all the way through the book. And I think that makes it quite unusual because because we're a very direct appeal model of therapy. I think there's been a, a tradition within transactional analysis of kind of just stating our conclusions, you know, quite plainly as possible and then get on to making them work. Yeah. Whereas I think because my ideas were somewhat unusual. It was important that I kind of said why they were there and what I was doing. So I think it it is a book where you can, even if you don't agree with it, you can learn something because you're retracing the assumptions that I make step by step in terms of how I ended up with some of my conclusions. Mm. So could you, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Mark. So could you explain how it's different from the other traditional classical theories? So it was pioneered in response to the challenge of working with certain clients who are not particularly represented in the literature. Yeah. These are clients who had spent most of their lives under conditions of quite significant social and economic deprivation. So there was the kind of people who couldn't see a therapist under most circumstances because they couldn't afford to be there. They couldn't couldn't be for a session. So I had to really kind of start with the client and think, why is this, why am I not understanding this? Why is nothing working? Why is nothing happening? Why do I feel like I'm hitting kind of a wall with this person? So, Eventually, I went through the literature and I read the people who are likely to be most sympathetic to these things, people like Claude Steiner, who'd written quite a lot about social circumstances, you know, who gave a couple of interesting pointers early on. But again, still didn't feel I was getting my head around it. So the main difference really was looking at the struggles that these clients were having and thinking, actually, I need to just think very, very differently about this. And the way that I thought differently about it was that I I started to think about psychological difficulties as perhaps existing along two axes. So the one at which what you call a vertical axis is what you might call how the person is across time. It would take into account how they developed as a person through the usual means, through their loving and caregiving relationships, through their associations with others, and how they've come to form certain kind of characters and experiences that were relatively consistent across time. But of course, if that developmental picture had gone slightly wrong, as we know from Burns' Ben Penny metaphor, something goes wrong and it kind of skews the pile of pennies later on, you kind of are working with who that person is across time. Whereas actually, if you think to yourself, okay, if I take this person now and I think about them in the, in the whole context of what's happening around them, and I don't just mean what's happening immediately around them in terms of their immediate circumstances, can we even pan out? Can we pan the camera back out further and think about the community, and then maybe even go out further in the community and go out to the society or the nation that they're in. And think about if I looked at that person in that context, which is where the term comes from, how how would I see them differently and how would I see their problems differently? Mm. So then when you start to think about a person horizontally, in other words, what's happening at the moment around them, you start to understand 
that the problems that they're experiencing are not just produced developmentally. They're not, it's not something that's purely in the person's head. It's not about the way they're responding to things, perceiving things, making sense of things. It's about what the world around them is making possible or not making possible. Mm-hmm. So you start to understand that some of the constraints on their capacity to solve their problems, to grow, to live and to flourish are not actually inside them. Yeah. They're, they're outside them. But also the outside kind of gets inside in a particular way, which is, again, slightly conceptualized slightly differently in my approach than it is in others. And I can explain that difference if it would be useful for you to do so. So the traditional psychological picture that we use in transactional analysis about the relationship between the self and the world is that the self is like a like a bundle of you know needs and wants and possibilities, and these things are all pushing and shoving and growing, trying to trying to move in a healthy direction. And sometimes things come in from the outside world and kind of wallop these things. You know, they they get in the way, they stop them, they cause hurt, they cause trauma, and that developmental process gets sent to the other side. So how would I think about? A horizontal difficulty. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to give you a metaphor now, which I often use to explain. But it's not a metaphor that's in the book. So imagine that the world around you is going to teach you how to understand things, how to be who you are. It's going to give you a language to talk about yourself and the world around you. It's going to give you facts. It's going to give you stories. It's going to give you a, an integrated picture of the world that you will then use to get around. Okay, but that doesn't mean that everything is dictated to you. You can still use those things because it's, it will end up being your language, your ideas, because you'll own them like everybody else. So imagine that this cultural inheritance, this language that you use, is a bit like a big bag of Scrabble letters, right? Mm. So some people, and I hope people will know what Scrabble is. It's basically a word game where you can put letters in a row to make words and you get points for it. I'm hoping it's an international reference point. So imagine that basically your parents of the world around you gives you like a big bag of Scrabble letters and says, here you go, you can now make your own script or your own way of seeing things. And you can use all these ideas and all this language that we've given you, but you can use it with a sense of freedom. So they give you this big bag of Scrabble letters. But what you don't know is that there are some letters that are present in other people's bags that are missing from your bag, right? There are some things you're never told. There are some things you never experience. There are some things that are never given to you. So without knowing it, there are just certain things you can't really say and think because they're just not part of the, the language that you're given to make sense of things. They're just not present in your world. And in the end, I think this was how I came to explain what my clients were struggling with. It's just that they, they just really couldn't understand that life could be any different because they had no language. They, they knew things were going wrong, but they didn't exactly know what things going right would look like or how they could get there. So I would hit this kind of continual wall where people are just, their distress and their discomfort in life would just become very normal to them because it was normal to everybody else around them and it was normal to the people who had raised them. So you end up with a kind of a completely collapsed culture where these Scrabble letters are kind of disappearing from the bag all the time. And you're having to do something quite different, which is that you're having to kind of introduce into the space ways of seeing things that are just never, ever going to come out of the plant unless you actually bring them in. Because you have a sense that things can be different in a way that the client can't because you come from a different part of the world. Yeah. Okay. So this is a socio-economic, socio-political perspective in some ways. Absolutely. And in what way would you say contextual transactional analysis differs in the approach to these issues to the idea of the cultural parent ego state that Drago wrote about? Is the something that's significant in your writings or your understanding of, of what's happening 
So I think Paul Draco effectively creates a kind of a categorical distinction in her work. She basically says there's a parent ego state and we can basically chop up the content into different kinds. So she uses the three ego state idea to talk about. I can't remember the the exact words she uses. Yeah. But she chops culture up into three different kind of sets of ideas. Hmm. And I suppose my work isn't necessarily so interested in categorizing what's in the parent ego state. It's more interested in talking about what does it mean for when we call something a parent ego state? What kind of relationship is the parent ego state between that and, and the other parts of the psyche? The idea that I develop in the book is the idea that the parent ego state is any kind of psychological content that we have to take on a kind of a trust and over which we don't have full authority. So that to me is what defines the parent, not a kind of a content, but a relationship to that content. Mm. So how do you track that? Well, I suppose if you were tracking it in a client, you might just have a sense as you were listening to someone that they were saying something in a way that they just took it to be straightforwardly true in all contexts and didn't necessarily have a sense of alternatives. Hmm. So if you, if you go into a particular community where everybody sort of thinks the same way and has similar experiences and there aren't necessarily lines of communication outside of that community, there's massive access to education or experiences outside and the, the culture is fairly homogeneous it can create this sense that I, I, my adults simply can't get out from under my parent because it, there's no counterpoint to offer. And it just seems as though things just are the way they are. And that was my experience with these clients. There was a real kind of concreteness to what they believed. Yeah, And it wasn't, I think, as the, the classical model had said, you know, the, the parent is like a big plunking fist that necessarily tells us how to think. Yeah, Because a lot of my clients hadn't necessarily been told how to think. They just looked around them and hadn't really found anything else to model their experience on except for this set of ideas. So does that mm. mean that part of your work in regards to contextual TA is about psychoeducation, educating the client that there are other ways of seeing things or thinking? Absolutely. So I think if you step outside of therapy for the moment and you think about the related tradition of consciousness raising, yeah. so consciousness raising is where you will sit in a particular space yeah. and talk with people in a way that introduces particular ideas. And those ideas are not necessarily familiar to you, but a consciousness raising space is a way of attempting to merge some of your immediate moment by moment experience with a new sense of the world that will raise your consciousness about what is happening with you at the moment in a way that is liberating. So yes, I would think of this kind of approach to therapy as being a kind of consciousness raising. How do you work with the idea of your personal and socio-political influence. Okay. It's a really important question. Um, it's obviously a question that's dealt very differently with in other traditions. And it's yeah. one that I do address and take very seriously in the book. Yeah. Because obviously most non-directive therapy traditions, most relational therapy traditions that rely upon an emergent process between the therapist and the client, yeah. think very carefully about the extent to which the therapist's own ideas, viewpoints, and sense of things enters into the space. We're, we're trained to be, you know, receptive and open and obviously to think that we can't get rid of ourselves entirely, but we're also trained to think very carefully about the extent to which we influence things. Mm. And there are good reasons for that in some cases. I'm certainly not suggesting that is an idea that should, we should chuck out the window all the time because it's useful for most kinds of client work. Yeah. And it's particularly useful for the kinds of client work that therapy has generally evolved in relation to because those kinds of clients didn't need us to bring something else in from outside. Mm. Um, but if you are faced with the kinds of client difficulties that I'm faced with, the predicament that you find yourself in as a therapist is rather different. Yeah. Mm. 
Because if you have a sense that you know or understand something about the world that this person doesn't, if you then think that actually the reason that this person doesn't understand this is because they have been deprived, intentionally deprived or inadvertently deprived of the means to understand it, then I think the predicament for you as a therapist is very different because you're suddenly no longer intruding into the space. You are withholding something and you're holding something which has been withheld from this person for most of their life. And I think it rather changes the way that you understand it. Now, that doesn't mean that you should not do this with a great deal of caution and care about how you introduce these ideas because you don't want the client to become an extension of your will, your interests, or your viewpoint. Mm. But obviously what I try and talk about in the book is to think very carefully about the ways in which an idea can be introduced in a non-dogmatic way so a client can consider it. So when I think about this as a guideline for therapy, if I'm introducing a set of ideas, I want the client to own them. I don't just want them to agree with them. I don't want them to be taken on trust. I want them to really understand what's being said. So you have to kind of create a space for exploration where the person has at least the possibility of rejecting what you say. So they might say, okay, well, I've now, I've now seen what you have to say about this. I've seen you've offered me an alternative and I understand my own point of view and maybe I'm going to stick with my own point of view and maybe I'm going to go to a third point of view that hasn't occurred to you anymore. Either of those things are possible, but the point is you've offered the client possibility, you've offered them choice. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of writing in the profession at the moment about power, and a lot of it then ends up being very hyper-conscious about the power of the therapist in the situation. And again, I understand why this literature is being written. But my sense is if if you are hyper-concerned about the power of the therapist, you will often are so to the exclusion of really noticing the power that sits outside the therapy room that is significantly bigger than either of you, um, which may be dominating the session, even if you are the thing that is most proximal to that person at that time. So that can create a somewhat different sense of obligation for me Mm. because it it can feel as though you're walking away from stuff. And I think there's also something uh, that I could add to this in terms of how you would conceptualize the therapeutic relationship that comes out of my reading of the Cathexis School. Mm. So for those who don't know, so the Cathexis School was one of the original three schools of transaction analysis. It was designed really to work with quite severely disturbed clients. And it has a, a series of interlinked concepts, including one which is symbiosis, which is this idea that you know we all have three ego states, but sometimes two people get together in a way that some of their ego states get excluded and they, they make up one set of ego states between them. Mm-hmm. So that's really a kind of an intrapsychic way of talking about responsibility in a lot of cases. You know, I'm yeah. going to let you take over my parent and adult responsibility. So what the Cathexis School really did was it used these these concepts, including sort of discounting frame of reference to things to say, okay, there are times when someone does something and I just feel this pull to say, actually, I really need to tell you that I see this differently. And it's, it goes against what all of the forms of therapy are telling you, but actually it's just sat at the front of your head. And what the cathexis will really said is that, you know, that is sort of a useful thing sometimes. And I did work in a cathexis community for a while. I worked in the one that was based in Birmingham. So if you're working with, you know, really quite disturbed people with very significant histories of, you know, self-harm and difficulties in managing their behavior, if somebody walks into a room, you know, bleeding everywhere and, you know, you look up and say, you know, what are you doing? And they go, well, there's nothing wrong. I'm not bleeding. They're basically pretending that they're not bleeding. They're discounting the existence of the problem. Yeah. That part of me is going, no, no, hang on. (laughs) This This is not an occasion where you and I can sit here and go, okay, well, you know, we can... You have your point of view and I have my point of view and your point of view is equally valid. You are bleeding, right? I know that you are bleeding. 
it creates a very, very different dynamic within the room. So there was that sense of me sat there going, I can't, I can't stop this thought at the front of my head. I just really want to say this. I really want to say this. And it wasn't because I desperately want to bound into the room and offer my opinions all the time because I really don't. I'm quite happy to listen to what Brian has to say. But I kept noticing these gaps and really it would be so helpful if you could just consider this. It would really shift things for you. So that, that concept can actually provide a theoretical apparatus, a kind of an architecture for understanding how and why under certain circumstances we might share an idea with a client if we really have a sense that it would be useful to do so and that they're not going to be able to solve their problems or we don't think they can solve their problems without us doing this. And that's really the heart of the book. Mm. So what's getting stimulated in me, and I'm really wanting to check this out, rather than making an assumption about it, is that some of what you're suggesting is that contextual TA is about inviting the practitioner into a process or a practice maybe, of continuously considering the context of the therapy, of the client's life, of Mm -hmm. their lived reality inside and outside the therapy room. Yeah. Uh, And then acting accordingly rather than doing just what you were told to do in therapy training because that's the best approach. Yeah. And sometimes doing things that ordinarily would be seen as not good practice, but because of the context you're in, actually it is required. Yeah, it's it's warranted by the nature of the difficulty. Um, so if I were to, I, I didn't do this earlier, but I'll do it now. So the, the particular definition of a horizontal problem outlined in the book is where the environment either deliberately withholds or fails to provide kind of the psychological material or the language for the client to solve their own problems. So you're reacting to something that isn't there that needs to be there. Mm. Now, obviously, this doesn't occur in a lot of cases. Most clients do not struggle under these circumstances or in this way. But the particular clients that I was working with perhaps did. Now, there are wider applicabilities to this. It's not just about the kinds of clients I was working with in this job. But obviously, it is, it is quite distinct. It's a quite distinct set of difficulties, I think, and it needed its own, its own language, its own set of concepts. What's just come up for me is the idea that these principles yeah. also apply to educational TA mm. and counselling. And then I'm wondering if at an organisational level, there would be uh, an application there as well. I think we already talked about it in organisational TA, actually. This is one of the interesting things that's really being stimulated for me here is about how actually this is at the guts of Byrne's original Structures and Dynamics book when we're looking at organisations and how what you're doing is really pulling that into psychotherapy. And I I find that really exciting because one of my frustrations when I went off to learn organizational TA is why we don't in psychotherapy consider the wider system more often which I think is some of what you're saying is about like actually people we meet in therapy work in organizations they live in communities they live in families and those are all really important contexts to consider outside of the individual yeah, I think that's true. So I think, I mean, obviously the most important distinction is if you are employed as an organizational practitioner or an educational practitioner, you are often working with an institution rather than an individual. So you're working with a whole localized system. Yeah. Whereas, of course, in counseling and psychotherapy, you're often just working with an individual who is part of that system, but the rest of the system isn't participating in the session with you. 
So my sense is that actually people who are therapists do talk about what happens around their plants' lives, but they do so in a particular way that I think the book tries to diverge from. So when I'm summarizing this to my students, I say that it's what I call the bad things happen idea of, of the environment. So when I'm explaining my client's story to you or, or putting together my sense of the case, and I think about what I think about all the bad things that might be happening to them, and I notice all the bad things. You know, so I notice the client is poor or that they're being you know, beaten up by their, their husband. Often talking about the environment becomes a way of thinking about cataloging and noticing all the bad things that have happened to the person. And then once you've done that, you kind of go back to the psychological language to think, okay, well, now I think what's the person's response to that? How do they make sense of it? How do they process it? So it becomes almost like a kind of a trauma-based theory of the environment, really. You know, let's look at the bad things and think about how the person responds. And I suppose I wanted to sit alongside that and think, yes, of course, we need to notice all the bad things that happen to a person, but we also need to notice the things that are not happening. And you need a kind of a, a critical consciousness for that. You need to think, okay, well, well, why? yeah, but why is it that these things keep happening? Why is it in the sixth wealthiest nation in the world, 40% of people are in precarious poverty on an ongoing basis and have no access to employment or access to the law or anything like this. Yeah. So those are the kinds of questions that you're asking, I think, from a contextual angle, which is drawn very much from sociology, which is not just what's here, but what isn't here and why isn't it here? And would it be useful for the client to think, okay, actually, there is another way this can go and another way things can be gone and maybe think a little bit about there's a pathway to doing that, to getting to that other state. And of course, you can't, you can't overthrow capitalism from the therapy room. It's just not going to happen. The person's still going to need to, to live within the world somewhat as it is, whilst hopefully in some ways ameliorating it locally, yeah. using a kind of a greater knowledge of the world uh, to yeah. do so. I get it really... Uh... I'm laughing because I'm just thinking about Byrne and the MacArthur tribunals. Yes. And just how he had to swear it would never become a political movement. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in some ways, therapy is so political, isn't it, actually, when we consider it in this way about the context in which people are living in and how oppression happens. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I think before I'd had this experience, I would have considered myself only an averagely political person. I didn't think about politics a lot of the time. And I suppose my political leanings would have been pretty much in line with mostly what you would expect to find in an average therapist, somewhat left-leaning, particularly on social issues. Mm. And I, I'm still, I mean, I'm very interested in politics in an academic sense, but I I'm still wouldn't say I was necessarily a hugely political person, but I felt I was dragged into it a little bit by the work because I just couldn't, I couldn't not see what I was seeing. So when I think about politics or bringing politics into therapy, I don't necessarily think about saying that a certain vision of the world is right. Mm. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, even if I might think that, even if I might generally think there are ideas that are much better than others, mm. that's not necessarily my goal. My goal is to put at the class disposal ideas and resources from which they can then make their own decisions and plot their own course through. So I'm, I'm really just looking to mitigate depoliticization yeah. because I think depoliticization is an intentional strategy used by certain governments and certainly by the, the UK government over the last 40 years. There has been an intentional strategy to depoliticize the working class and working communities mm. to deprive them of the means of political expression. So that is the non-interest in politics is not a naturally occurring phenomenon. It is, it is something that has been done to people. So yeah. my, my, my only goal really is to try to mitigate that, is not, not to go any further than that and to say what lies beyond the depolitization, because you have to at some point hand it back to communities to decide what they want to do and what kind of vision of the world they want to try 
in however small a way they can to bring about. Mm, Yeah, I got a couple of quotes from your book and one of them, page 52, if you got the book, when our voice isn't heard and we lack the social power to influence others, then the adult capacity to act on the world through open communication evaporates. I also wanted to ask, one of the things in the book you talk about are the four qualities within that horizontal axis that are necessary. Is it necessary or required in order to have good well-being? Yeah, so have a functioning social system, I think, would be the way to put it. I mean, bad things can always happen in any social system. We're not here to design utopia. Yeah. But we're thinking about what should a system aim to do, a social system aim to do, what things would need to be present in order for it to work. Yeah. And could you go through those just briefly, a little bit of education now for the listeners I'm now, I'm now going to have to remember exactly how I define them, which is... So uh, there were resourcefulness. Resourcefulness, yeah. So resourcefulness is basically the idea that a society is a problem-solving unit. Okay. So societies exist basically because we're more resourceful collectively than we are individually. Hmm. So resourcefulness means that your whole sort of social organization works to solve some problems for you so that your own actions can result in a successful outcome. So we do things like make it easier for people to access food, housing, employment. You know, you, you still have to do something to get those things, but yeah. you don't have to go off and find your own field and plow it and make your own job. You, it, it puts certain things in front of you yeah. so that your, your own actions are sufficient to meet your own needs. So that's what resourcefulness would mean. So responsiveness really means that you are recognized as a citizen and the, and the world offers you channels or means for your wants, needs, and interests to be expressed and to have an influence on the overall course of the, the social system. Yeah. And then truthfulness, which is the third one, is the idea that in order for this to happen, people need to have very honest and open conversations amongst themselves about who they are, what they want, what they need, and how they're going to do things. So this might refer to what sort of Habermas talks about as a public sphere, a place where people come together and talk about and exchange ideas and refine them and hone them in relation to each other. And then finally, the, the most slightly intangible one is, is the notion of integrity, which was one I added at the last moment. It's an idea that a place needs somehow to feel at home for people. They need to feel that the, the language is kind of homely and joins up and allows them to navigate the world in a comfortable way that is somewhat effortless, I guess. And it, that means that, that your, your home culture, your home language, your home setting is, is available as a source of love and attachment and admiration for you. It, it gives you a language to speak about all the experiences that you need. And it doesn't leave you feeling internally confused as to what's happening and what I'm supposed to do. So this really comes out of readings of things like massive culture shocks. If you go through, for example, I think there was, I can't remember which of the Korean countries it was, whether it was North or South, they went through a massive culture shock where they moved everybody from the countryside into cities and their whole way of being just was totally disrupted and there were mass suicides. So that's a kind of a mass failure of integrity. Right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because you just can't. That nothing just makes sense and you just don't know what to do or how to make sense of things or how to value things because the language that you use has been shattered. And with those four qualities, as a teacher of counsellors and therapists, how would you encourage that to be integrated into the work? Is that simply an awareness using those four? Okay, so that's that's a really good question. And I think my ideas about that have changed a little bit since I I finished the book because I think... I think for certain clients, certainly for the clients I was working with, therapy is useful, but not enough on its own. And I think, I think there are certain clients where partnership working is, is very helpful. Yeah. So the ideas are really meant to work in tandem. And I think in particular, just raising people's basic sense of competence and sense of control over their actions in the world around them. I mean, even you know, if I think about the number of my clients, for example, who really had very poor reading 
And how do you navigate the benefit system or respond to letters about your gas bill? If, if your reading is poor, you're terrified. So, you know, you might think about, for example, literacy classes as being something that, that anybody who's looking to raise the basic efficacy of the community would do. Yeah. But yes, in terms of what therapy can do, really, there are two basic things which may help. One of which is to raise kind of intellectual resourcefulness. In other words, to give a clearer picture of what's actually happening around you and in sufficient detail for people to be able to act on that. So it's not enough to have a kind of a generalized sense that things are going badly wrong, because that's often actually not that helpful because it can increase people's sense of powerlessness. If you just say, oh, you know, there are all these systems around you and they're doing horrible things. And there's nothing yeah. you can do about that. That's, that doesn't help people. What helps people is to say, okay, this is exactly how something works. And this is how people have traditionally worked well within these systems or worked to their advantage. So yes, increasing outside rather than insight. Most therapy increases insight. This increases outside. Yeah. But very detailed and specific outside. Yeah. But alongside that, I think if you think about political struggles and what makes political struggles work, um, if you don't have power, the only power that you have is strength in numbers. Yeah. So I think there has to be a way of bringing people together and helping people to understand that there is a collective struggle here and that it's it's much better if you know a hundred people turn up and complain about something than one person turns up to complain about something because that's what you have the strength in numbers. Yeah. So historically when you think about successful political mobilization at a grassroots level, those two things have generally been in place. Yeah. And those things are supported, I think, by the four, that's certainly three of the four conditions. Yeah. Because then you try to increase the responsiveness. You try to increase the society's responsiveness to your needs through information and through solidarity. And in that, would you then be helping the client to become more aware of their connections to others in similar circumstances or to, to groups that are already meeting? Again, is that part of the educational process of the role? You, you would certainly consider it. Some people would be something that you would want to consider as an aspiration for the work. Again, it's very interesting because the actual processes, the social processes within the communities I worked in very much worked against this because there actually wasn't a lot of solidarity between people. People often didn't have friends. They didn't go out a lot. Maybe they weren't working. And if they were going to work, they were maybe on very insecure contracts. There were no unions. So they didn't have a kind of a collective sense at work, which so it really brought people out in silence. So you have to think about ways in which people can just at least come together. Some of my clients were just very suspicious of other people generally, right. which then ties into the quality of truthfulness. Because if you, if you can't speak about your experiences, if you can't share them, you can't understand that other people have them in common. So there has to be a detoxification process that happens in therapy so people can understand that other people might be sympathetic to this and other people might have a similar experience. And then at that point, you might say, okay, well, let's, let's think about ways in which you can actually go out and meet people who are doing things or, or join up with people who are doing things. But there, there may need to be quite a lot of work before that happens. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So what's next for Contextual TA, James? Is there more work in the pipeline? That's that's an interesting question because it was the book was um was launched in the pandemic, which contextually bent par excellence, and it really you know like a lot of people, it really knocked my life sideways because the service I was working for just became completely unviable. Mm. So that was the point at which I made the decision to to leave and take up a, a lecturing post and increase my hours doing that. So it's not necessarily an ongoing area of concern for me because I'm not working in that place anymore and I'm, I'm doing something quite different. I'm still very happy to speak to people about the ideas and maybe one day I will return to doing something about them. But 
I think also the wider political and social situation within the UK, particularly for my class, is really desperate at the moment and obviously has become much worse over the last 15 years. And now that everything is just so much more expensive, I mean, a lot of services that we used to rely upon working in partnership with have closed. Uh, people, you know, just can't afford to eat. They can't afford to turn on their heating. And, you know, if you're hearing these kinds of difficulties, I think there's a rational tendency to think, well, maybe therapy just isn't actually the most immediate need at the moment. So I didn't, I didn't particularly want to work in a job where I just felt like I was a dumping ground for things that I, I just couldn't really do anything about. Yeah. Because it's, it's an awful feeling to sit in a sense of powerlessness and hopelessness, you know, with your clients who are also feeling very powerless and hopeless. Yeah. So I, I left at that point and I, I contribute in other ways really to, to what's happening at the moment. Donate a lot of my private money to the food banks because I just think that's where the immediate need is for a lot of people. But yeah, I think um, I'd certainly be interested in speaking to anybody who's interested in taking these ideas forward in another context. But uh, I'm now mainly involved with the project of how on earth one teaches therapists. <laughs> you know, how do you run good therapy trainings? Right. And obviously, it sounds like this is a really important topic to bring into counseling and psychotherapy training. Do you have a a kind of an objective there as well and hope that this is brought into mainstream TA therapy training? I do, but I, I think, and again, this is in the last chapter of the book, and I, but I wish I'd stressed it more clearly. I think one of the experiences that came out of working with those clients is that sometimes therapy does have to acknowledge its limits. Mm -hmm. So oppression is not a psychological problem. It is a real problem that has certain psychological implications. Yeah. And working with psychological implications does not necessarily improve somebody's workplace rights or give them access to better housing or mm. create more social dignity for them. So we have to be very realistic about what we can do under highly constrained and adverse circumstances. And I think I would like to see more in therapy about the kinds of clients that we can ideally help and those that we're less able to help, because I think actually our work would be stronger if we acknowledged our limits. I think mm. there's something within the overall culture of therapy, not just within transactional analysis, where you have this idea that you learn a model and then you can work with anybody. Yeah. You can use this model in every single way. And i that's not a way of thinking that I'm necessarily that sympathetic to. I think therapy does a particular job. Mm. I think certain sets of conceptual tools do certain jobs better than other conceptual tools. And I think there are other ways of helping people that we need to think much more sympathetically about working in partnership with. But again, this goes back to a comment we made at the beginning of the interview about how do we pay for therapy? It's about your relationship to institutions. So if I'm working as a therapist at an institution that has a lot of money to provide different roles in a multidisciplinary team, these things are much easier to think about than they are if you're a lone therapist mm. working in private practice with just yourself to rely upon and perhaps a network of people that you refer to. So certain things would really have to change in order for these ideas to be, I think, to be taken forward meaningfully. Not saying that they can't ever work in isolation, but I'm I'm just very wary about people turning up and saying we need to be able to work with contextual factors like it's any other kind of difficulty. Tell me what five things I need to consider in the therapy, and then I'll I'll go out and do them. It's not that kind of book, and it's not that kind of learning experience. Yeah, because the one thing that I did need to know, and I in the end, I, I needed to know a lot of stuff basically. Like I needed to know how the benefit system worked. I needed to understand how the legal system sort of worked in certain areas. I just needed to know certain stuff so that I had a sense of what was actually happening to people. And obviously that's that's quite specific knowledge that's specific to my clients. And it's, it's yeah. hard to generalize that as well. But I also think one of the recommendations from the final chapter of the book is that we we do need to think about therapy as not just the core knowledge of knowledge of a theory, 
self-knowledge and self-reflective capacity plus practical experience. We need sometimes to think that actually we do need to know things about the world around us in order to understand our clients. And we can't generalize those things down to a theory. We actually just need to go and know stuff. Yeah, it hinges off the real meaning of empathy, I guess, really, doesn't it? Because empathy isn't just about saying, you know, I understand. It's like, well, well actually, do you really? Yeah, and because actually, interestingly, you don't. Sometimes you only realise with the benefit of hindsight that you didn't understand something once you really understand something. <laughs> you know, because so I mean, I started, I started my career as a therapist when I was doing my very first counselling training. I worked with clients who were refugees and asylum seekers. And I was, I was doing my best under these circumstances to listen and respond. And then I did some training on the asylum system because I was working in a center where they provided this training. And I, I got a detail and I was like, ah, now, now I know what it was I didn't know. But sometimes you can only realize your own ignorance with the benefit of hindsight. So this is where the idea of a parent ego state really comes into play, that sometimes there are people out there that know stuff more than we do and we have to defer to them. But then if they teach us in the right way, their knowledge becomes ours. Yeah. I think that's a really important point, actually, because there's one thing about doing maybe CPD from a psychotherapy standpoint about spe certain specialisms or contexts. Yeah. But actually, often I've found that the training I've done that hasn't been provided by a therapeutic training institute on a special subject, like maybe neurodiversity or something mm. like that, or working with the trans community, has actually really helped me and my skill in working with those clients much more than yeah. any training I could have done from a therapeutic point of view. So I think it's really valuable. Yeah, I think so. I think I'd, what I'd really like to see is, is scope for people who are doing that kind of grassroots works with particular sections of people to write what I would call more non-theoretical works. They don't necessarily have to generalize anything, but actually just say, look, I work with these clients a lot. This is what typically comes through the door this is my understanding of it and gives you a sort of a descriptive context specific account of what happens and not worry too much about it generalizing to all times and all places we yeah. you know the the experience of the trans community or something is going to change because the context exactly. change and it's going to be different from country to country so you know you don't necessarily need to think there's a universal experience here you need to think about what's it like in the uk for these people yeah. with these yeah. conditions that's yeah. that's your working knowledge if you're based here yes yeah, yeah. I think we're in danger sometimes in the psychotherapy world of pathologizing everything. So we take that route to it, to understanding it. And it's like, actually, you know, sometimes we just need to know what it's like on the ground for that individual person in where they're living and, and their community. Yeah. And I think that opens up uh, a lot more empathy in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose I, I think of therapy work as about being unrealized possibilities. You know, that's our job is about understanding that certain things are possible and helping clients to understand certain things are possible in whatever way that may yeah. be appropriate for them and, and given whatever impediments to understanding or reaching those possibilities may be in the way. So where can people get the book, James? So you can, you can buy it through the, the big ones online that I won't name. But uh, yeah, it's, it is available. Um, it's out at Rutledge, so it's a major publisher, so it shouldn't be too obscure. And what's the full title? Uh, so the full title is uh, Contextual Transactional Analysis, colon, The Inseparability of Self and World by James M. Sedgwick. Great. Right. Brilliant. To contact with you, oh, how yeah. can they do that? I'm very low profile in terms of my availability, uh, which is an intentional decision on my part. I'm, I'm not necessarily greatly in favor of living my life in public, so I'm happy to talk about professional matters here. So I don't really have a social media presence. And although I, I run a small private practice alongside my academic work, I don't have a website or anything. But 
I am based at Birmingham Newman University, so you can find me. And if you particularly want to speak to me, you can contact me through there. You can find that my details right. on the website. Um, and I'm usually happy to receive emails on a related subject if that's something that people want to do. Great. Right. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. I just want to say thank you for all of the effort in writing the book because I've really enjoyed it. And I also, one of the things that I actually like about the TA community is that there is an openness to the theory being challenged. I like the fact that there are a number of different theories that have opposing views. And one of the things about your book, you talked about pulling at the threads of some of the theories and in your sense that they started to unravel. And so you needed to kind of reconstruct it. And I really enjoyed your deconstruction and reconstruction of that and the fact that you got stuck in and challenged it from your experience of your work. So, yeah, it was, it's a really enjoyable read. And I think something important, especially because we are living in a world where I think there are socio-political and socio-economic transitions taking place now. Yeah. That... Uh, really need to be paid attention to yeah and hopefully i mean the book was a response to that and hopefully people will find that it takes them at least one step forward in terms of their understanding i think if you can get people just one step forward that's that's better than nothing and hopefully then i'm engaging with it with it will have been worth your time yeah lovely right thanks so much james thanks for your time here as well james thank Thank you. you very much to both of you as always If you found anything in today's episode interesting, please feel free to reach out. You can visit our website, which has lots of information and resources, transactionalanalysispodcast.com. You can connect with us on all major platforms, such as Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And you can email us at info at transactionalanalysispodcast.com. If you aren't already, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. This episode is sponsored by the International Transactional Analysis Association. You can find out more information on the ITAA at www.itaaworld.org forward slash ITAA hyphen membership hyphen benefits and the European Association for Transactional Analysis. You can find more information on EATA at www.eatanews.org.